0: chapter 2 of green mansions this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina green mansions by w h hudson chapter 2 It is fortunate that cassari is manufactured by an extremely slow, laborious process, since the women, who are the drink-makers, in the first place have to reduce the material, cassava bread, to a pulp by means of their own molars, after which it is watered down and put away in troughs to ferment. Great is the diligence of these willing slaves, but work how they will, they can only satisfy their lord's love of a big drink at long intervals such a function as that at which I had assisted, is therefore the result of much patient mastication and silent fermentation, the delicate flower of a plant that has been a long time growing. Having now established myself as one of the family, at the cost of some disagreeable sensations, and a pang or two of self-disgust, I resolved to let nothing further trouble me at Parahurari, but to live the easy, careless life of the idle man, joining in hunting and fishing expeditions, when in the mood, at other times enjoying existence in my own way, apart from my fellows, conversing with wild nature in that solitary place. Besides Rooney there were in our little community two oldish men, his cousins, I believe, who had wives and grown-up children. Another family consisted of Piake, Rooney's nephew, his brother Kuako, about whom there will be much to say, and his sister, Uolava. Piake had a wife and two children. Kua-Ko was unmarried and about nineteen or twenty years old. Uolava was the youngest of the three. Last of all, who should perhaps have been first, was Rooney's mother, called Kla-Kla, probably an imitation of the cry of some bird, for in these latitudes a person is rarely, perhaps never, called by his or her real name, which is a secret jealously preserved, even from near relations. I believe that Clacla herself was the only living being who knew the name her parents had bestowed on her at birth. She was a very old woman, spare in figure, brown as old sun-baked leather, her face written over with innumerable wrinkles, and her long coarse hair perfectly white. Yet she was exceedingly active, and seemed to do more work than any other woman in the community. More than that, When the day's toil was over and nothing remained for the others to do, then Kla night-work would begin, and this was to talk all the others, or at all events all the men, to sleep. She was like a self-regulating machine, and punctually every evening, when the door was closed, and the night-fire made up, and every man in his hammock, she would set herself going, telling the most interminable stories, until the last listener was fast asleep later in the night if any man woke with a snort or grunt off she would go again taking up the thread of the tail where she had dropped it old cla cla amused me very much by night and day and i seldom tired of watching her owlish countenance as she sat by the fire never allowing it to sink low for want of fuel always studying the pot when it was on to simmer and at the same time attending to the movements of the others about her ready at a moment's notice to give assistance, or to dart out on a stray chicken or refractory child. So much did she amuse me, although without attending it, that I thought it would be only fair in my turn to do something for her entertainment. I was engaged one day in shaping a wooden foil with my knife, whistling and singing snatches of old melodies at my work, when all at once I caught sight of the ancient dame looking greatly delighted chuckling internally nodding her head and keeping time with her hands evidently she was able to appreciate a style of music superior to that of the aboriginals and forthwith i abandoned my foils for the time and set about the manufacture of a guitar which cost me much labor and brought out more ingenuity than i had ever thought myself capable of to reduce the wood to the right thinness then to bend and fasten it with wooden pegs and with gums To add the arm, frets, keys, and finally the catgut strings, those of another kind being out of the question, kept me busy for some days. When completed it was a rude instrument, scarcely tunable. Nevertheless, when I smote the strings, playing lively music, or accompanying myself in singing, I found that it was a great success and so was as much pleased with my own performance as if i had had the most perfect guitar ever made in old spain i also skipped about the floor strum strumming at the same time instructing them in the most lively dances of the whites in which the feet must be as nimble as the player's fingers it is true that these exhibitions were always witnessed by the adults with a profound gravity which would have disheartened a stranger to their ways they were a set of hollow bronze statues that looked at me, but I knew that the living animals inside of them were tickled at my singing, strumming, and pirouetting. kla was, however, an exception, and encouraged me not infrequently by emitting a sound, half cackle and half screech, by way of laughter. For she had come to her second childhood, or, at all events, had dropped the stolid mask which the young Gehanna Savage, in imitation of his elders, adjusted to his face at about the age of twelve, to wear it thereafter all his life long, or only to drop it occasionally when very drunk. The youngsters also openly manifested their pleasure, although as a rule they tried to restrain their feelings in the presence of grown-up people, and with them I became a great favourite. By and by I returned to my foil-making, and gave them fencing-lessons and sometimes invited two or three of the biggest boys to attack me simultaneously just to show how easily i could disarm and kill them this practice excited some interest in kuako who had a little more of curiosity and geniality and less of the put-on dignity of the others and with him i became most intimate fencing with kuako was highly amusing no sooner was he in position foil in hand and all my instructions were thrown to the winds, and he would charge and attack me in his own barbarous manner, with the result that I would send his foil spinning a dozen yards away, while he, struck motionless, would gaze after it in open-mouthed astonishment. Three weeks had passed by, not unpleasantly, when, one morning, I took it into my head to walk by myself across that somewhat sterile savannah west of the village and stream, which ended, as I have said, in a long, low, stony ridge. From the village there was nothing to attract the eye in that direction, but I wished to get a better view of that great solitary hill or mountain of Itaioa, and the cloud-like summits beyond it in the distance. From the stream the ground rose in a gradual slope, and the highest part of the ridge for which I made was about two miles from the starting point, a parched, brown plain with nothing growing on it but scattered tussocks of sear, hair-like grass. When I reached the top, and could see the country beyond, I was agreeably disappointed at the discovery that the sterile ground extended only about a mile and a quarter on the further side, and was succeeded by a forest, a very inviting patch of woodland, covering five or six square miles, occupying a kind of oblong basin, extending from the foot of Itaioa on the north to a low range of rocky hills on the south. From the wooded basin long, narrow strips of forest ran out in various directions like the arms of an octopus, one pair embracing the slopes of Itaioa, another much broader belt extending along a valley which cut through the ridge of hills on the south side at right angles, and was lost to sight beyond far away in the west and south and north distant mountains appeared not in regular ranges but in groups or singly or looking like blue banked up clouds on the horizon glad at having discovered the existence of this forest so near home and wondering why my indian friends had never taken me to it nor ever went out on that side i set forth with a light heart to explore it for myself regretting only that i was without a proper weapon for procuring game the walk from the ridge over the savannah was easy as the barren stony ground sloped downwards the whole way the outer part of the wood on my side was very open composed in most part of dwarf trees that grow on stony soil and scattered thorny bushes bearing a yellow pea-shaped blossom presently i came to thicker wood where the trees were much taller and in greater variety, and after this came another sterile strip, like that on the edge of the wood, where stone cropped out from the ground and nothing grew except the yellow-flowered thorn bushes. Passing this sterile ribbon, which seemed to extend to a considerable distance north and south, and was fifty to a hundred yards wide, the forest again became dense and the trees large, with much undergrowth in places obstructing the view and making progress difficult. I spent several hours in this wild paradise, which was so much more delightful than the extensive gloomier forests I had often penetrated in Guyana, for here, if the trees did not attain to such majestic proportions, the variety of vegetable forms was even greater. As far as I went it was nowhere dark under the trees, and the number of lovely parasites everywhere illustrated the kindly influence of light and air. Even where the trees were largest the sunshine penetrated, subdued by the foliage to exquisite greenish-golden tints, filling the wide lower spaces with tender half-lights and faint blue and grey shadows. Lying on my back and gazing up, I felt reluctant to rise and renew my ramble. For what a roof was that above my head! Roof, I call it! just as the poets in their poverty sometimes describe the infinite ethereal sky by that word, but it was no more roof-like and hindering to the soaring spirit than the higher clouds that float in changing forms and tints, and like the foliage chasten the intolerable noonday beams. How far above me seemed that leafy cloudland into which I gazed! Nature, we know, first taught the architect to produce by long colonnades the illusion of distance, but the light excluding roof prevents him from getting the same effect above here nature is unapproachable with her green airy canopy a sun impregnated cloud cloud above cloud and though the highest may be unreached by the eye the beams yet filter through illumining the wide spaces beneath chamber succeeded by chamber each with its own special lights and shadows far above me but not nearly so far as it seemed The tender gloom of one such chamber or space is traversed now by a golden shaft of light falling through some break in the upper foliage, giving a strange glory to everything it touches, projecting leaves and beard-like tuft of moss and snaky bush rope. And in the most open part of that most open space, suspended on nothing to the eye, the shaft reveals a tangle of shining silver threads, the web of some large tree-spider. These seemingly distant yet distinctly visible threads serve to remind me that the human artist is only able to get his horizontal distance by a monotonous reduplication of pillar and arch placed at regular intervals, and that the least departure from this order would destroy the effect. But nature produces her effects at random, and seems only to increase the beautiful illusion by that infinite variety of decoration in which she revels binding tree to tree in a tangle of anaconda-like lianas, and dwindling down from these huge cables to airy webs and hair-like fibres that vibrate to the wind of the passing insect's wing. Thus in idleness, with such thoughts for company, I spent my time, glad that no human being, savaged or civilized, was with me. It was better to be alone to listen to the monkeys that chattered, without offending. To watch them occupy with the unserious business of their lives with that luxuriant tropical nature its green clouds and elusive aerial spaces full of mystery they harmonized well in language appearance and motions mountebank angels living their fantastic lives far above earth in a halfway heaven of their own i saw more monkeys on that morning than i usually saw in the course of a week's rambling and other animals were seen, I particularly remember two akuris I startled, that after rushing away a few yards stopped and stood peering back at me as if not knowing whether to regard me as friend or enemy. Birds too were strangely abundant, and altogether this struck me as being the richest hunting ground I had seen, and it astonished me to think that the Indians of the village did not appear to visit it. On my return in the afternoon i gave an enthusiastic account of my day's ramble speaking not of the things that had moved my soul but only of those which moved the guiana indians soul the animal food he craves and which one would imagine nature would prefer him to do without so hard he finds it to wrest a sufficiency from her to my surprise they shook their heads and looked troubled at what i said and finally my host informed me that the wood I had been in was a dangerous place, that if they went there to hunt, a great injury would be done to them, and he finished by advising me not to visit it again. I began to understand from their looks and the old man's vague words that their fear of the wood was superstitious. If dangerous creatures had existed there, tigers or commoodies or solitary murderous savages, they would have said so but when I pressed them with questions they could only repeat that something bad existed in the place, that animals were abundant there because no Indian who valued his life dared venture into it. I replied that unless they gave me some more definite information I should certainly go again, and put myself in the way of the danger they feared. My reckless courage, as they considered it, surprised them but they had already begun to find out that their superstitions had no effect on me, that I listened to them as to stories invented to amuse a child, and for the moment they made no further attempt to dissuade me. Next day I returned to the forest of evil report, which had now a new and even greater charm, the fascination of the unknown and the mysterious. Still, the warning I had received made me distrustful and cautious at first, for i could not help thinking about it when we consider how much of their life is passed in the woods which become as familiar to them as the streets of our native town to us it seems almost incredible that these savages have a superstitious fear of all forests fearing them as much even in the bright light of day as a nervous child with memory filled with ghost stories fears a dark room but like the child in the dark room they fear the forest only when alone in it, and for this reason always hunt in couples or parties. What then prevented them from visiting this particular wood, which offered so tempting a harvest? The question troubled me not a little. At the same time I was ashamed of the feeling, and fought against it, and in the end I made my way to the same sequestered spot where I had rested so long on my previous visit. IN THIS PLACE I WITNESSED A NEW THING AND HAD A STRANGE EXPERIENCE. SITTING ON THE GROUND IN THE SHADE OF A LARGE TREE, I BEGAN TO HEAR A CONFUSED NOISE AS OF A COMING TEMPEST OF WIND MIXED WITH SHRILL CALLS AND CRIES. NEARER AND NEARER IT CAME, AND AT LAST A MULTITUDE OF BIRDS OF MANY KINDS, BUT MOSTLY SMALL, APPEARED IN SIGHT SWARMING THROUGH THE TREES, SOME RUNNING ON THE TRUNKS AND LARGER BRANCHES, OTHERS FLITTING THROUGH THE foliage and many keeping on the wing, now hovering and now darting this way or that. They were all busily searching for and pursuing the insects, moving on at the same time, and in a very few minutes they had finished examining the trees near me and were gone, but not satisfied with what I had witnessed, I jumped up and rushed after the flock, to keep it in sight. All my caution and all recollection of what the Indians had said was now forgot, so great was my interest in this bird army but as they moved on without pause they quickly left me behind and presently my career was stopped by an impenetrable tangle of bushes vines and roots of large trees extending like huge cables along the ground in the midst of this leafy labyrinth i sat down on a projecting root to cool my blood before attempting to make my way back to my former position After that tempest of motion and confused noises, the silence of the forest seemed very profound. But before I had been resting many moments it was broken by a low strain of exquisite bird melody, wonderfully pure and expressive, unlike any musical sound I had ever heard before. It seemed to issue from a thick cluster of broad leaves of a creeper only a few yards from where I sat." With my eyes fixed on this green hiding-place, I waited with suspended breath for its repetition, wondering whether any civilized being had ever listened to such a strain before. Surely not, I thought, else the fame of so divine a melody would long ago have been noised abroad. I thought of the realijo, the celebrated organ-bird or flute-bird, and of the various ways in which the hearers are affected by it. To some its warbling is like the sound of a beautiful, mysterious instrument, while to others it seems like the singing of a blithe-hearted child with a highly melodious voice. I had often heard and listened with delight to the singing of the Rialaho in the Guiana forests, but this song, or musical phrase, was utterly unlike it in character. It was pure, more expressive, softer so low that at a distance of forty yards i could hardly have heard it but its greatest charm was its resemblance to the human voice a voice purified and brightened to something almost angelic imagine then my impatience as i sat there straining my sense my deep disappointment when it was not repeated i rose at length very reluctantly and slowly began making my way back but when i had progressed about thirty yards again the sweet voice sounded just behind me and turning quickly i stood still and waited the same voice but not the same song not the same phrase the notes were different more varied and rapidly enunciated as if the singer had become more excited the blood rushed to my heart as i listened my nerves tingled with a strange new delight the rapture produced by such music heightened by a sense of mystery before many moments i heard it again not rapid now but a soft warbling lower than at first infinitely sweet and tender sinking to lisping sounds that soon ceased to be audible the whole having lasted as long as it would take me to repeat a sentence of a dozen words this seemed the singer's farewell to me for I waited and listened in vain to hear it repeated and after getting back to the starting point I sat for upwards of an hour still hoping to hear it once more the weltering sun at length compelled me to quit the wood but not before i had resolved to return the next morning and seek for the spot where i had met with so enchanting an experience after crossing the sterile belt i have mentioned within the wood and just before i came to the open outer edge where the stunted trees and bushes die away on the border of the savannah What was my delight and astonishment at hearing the mysterious melody once more? It seemed to issue from a clump of bushes close by. But by this time I had come to the conclusion that there was a ventriloquism in this woodland voice, which made it impossible for me to determine its exact direction. Of one thing I was, however, now quite convinced, and that was that the singer had been following me all the time. Again and again as I stood there listening it sounded now so faint and apparently far off as to be scarcely audible, then all at once it would ring out bright and clear within a few yards of me, as if the shy little thing had suddenly grown bold. But far or near the vocalist remained invisible, and at length the tantalizing melody ceased altogether. End of chapter